Okay, guys, so we're in lesson two, and we're going to look at the first of the 12 books. Now, there are a lot of ways that I could have approached this. I, you know, I told you there are three periods of prophets with reference to uh, Israel's life, and that would be with reference to the exile. So there's the pre-exilic, the exilic, and the post-exilic prophets. So I thought, you know, I could do that chronologically for you, and I thought, nah, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do it is the way you have it in your Bible. So the very first of the 12 in your Bible is Hosea. And so that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to look at Hosea, and this is basically introductory material, and you can ask questions as we go. And uh, so we're going to look, first of all, at the historical background. If you're going to understand these books... Typically, I, I just had a discussion with somebody this week, and they're like, somebody had some questions, and somebody said, oh, well, just take your Bible and read it. Okay, you know, that we, that's a typical answer. I've given that answer before. But the problem is, if you think about it, if they've got questions and they've never even been around a Bible, where do they start? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Let's say they open up and they're in Leviticus. How many of you hang out in Leviticus? Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, you're like, uh, you know, it's God's, yeah, we, it's God's word. We understand it, why it's there. But when you're, when you're searching, you don't know what to look for there. You know what I'm saying? And so, in a sense, we need to understand these books, their background and so forth, because we're Gentiles. We're way removed from their culture the typical Jew would understand what was going on in their history, and they still do. They do today understand their history, but for us, we don't. And so that's what we're going to do. For us, to, if we're going to dig into this book, which we're going to dig into it on January the 8th, you know, when we get back, we're going to start with chapter 1. But you've got to have some background in your mind. So we're going to talk about the background. We're going to talk about the uh, author, the prophet himself, and then we're going to talk about what the occasion, the purpose, and the themes of the book are, okay? So let's talk about the historical background. So the first thing I want you to notice is this is a map of the area. When this book was written was when the Assyrian Empire was dominating the world, okay? So the Assyrian Empire, based out of Nineveh, was conquering everything. They would eventually conquer the northern kingdom, okay? And you remember, if you go into Isaiah, they would pretty much take most of Judea, the southern kingdom, surround Jerusalem, but God would not allow them to take Jerusalem. And so, this is around the time of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, so let's talk about it. So if we're going to understand... Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, kind of sets the tone for us. And so here's what the scripture says in Hosea. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. So it's going to let you know this is pre-exilic, okay, why? Because there's a king for the northern kingdom, that's Jeroboam, which is Jeroboam II. 
And Hosea is ministering during the time of these Judean kings, the southern kingdom, which is Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay? So, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that he prophesied during the 8th century B.C., which is pre-exilic. So in the 700s B.C., which would be the 8th century, this is when Hosea prophesies, okay? Hosea's ministry spanned several decades. So he was a prophet for a while, okay? So it spanned several decades. His ministry began near the end of King Uzziah's reign in Judah, which was 790 to 739 B.C. So that's when his reign began. It's around the time that Uzziah's reign ended. Now, do you remember Uzziah when we studied uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles? Anybody know what Uzziah did? He had a long reign, 52 years, okay? It was a time of prosperity, but he did one stupid thing, and he ended up, well, anybody know? Anybody know the story about Uzziah? Nope, that was Hezekiah, okay? Uzziah is the one who, in his arrogance, okay, so think about this. When prosperity is happening, he's thinking he's the one. And so he's really getting lifted up in his mind, so he decides that he's going to perform the function of a priest. And so he goes into the most holy place, okay, where there's the altar of incense and so forth, and behind the veil is the is the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, he goes in there to offer incense. And the high priest is there and saying, look, you shouldn't even be here. Get out of here. But he's like, I'm here to offer incense to the Lord. And while he's there, what happens to him? Anybody remember the story? A spot of leprosy appeared on him and grew right there in front of the priest. He was covered with leprosies to the point that the priest just pushed him out of the most holy place and he ended up becoming a leper the rest of his life and lived in isolation the rest of his reign. He lived as a leper, separated from everyone else. In fact, when he was buried, they wouldn't even bury him with his fathers in the tomb of his fathers because he was a leper. And that was a judgment upon him. So that's Uzziah, okay? That's Uzziah. So he reigned 790, 739 B.C. Now his ministry began near the end of Jeroboam II, second's reign in Samaria. In the northern kingdom, the ten tribes were also called Samaria. But Samaria was also a city. So his reign is towards the end of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II is not a godly man. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, okay? That's the interesting thing about the northern kings is that they all did evil in the sight of the Lord. There was not a godly man among them, okay? So his reign begins then. Now, the ministry lasted until the early years of Hezekiah's reign in Judah, starting in 715. So he, his ministry was through several kings, 
Then it gets to Hezekiah's reign at the beginning of Hezekiah's reign, 715. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you look at verse 1, all right, let's go back to verse 1 here. He ministered for several decades, and I told you that he began at the end of Jeroboam II's reign. Who's missing from this verse? Who doesn't he mention here? He mentions all of the kings of Judah. He mentions the beginning of who's, when he began, who was the king in Israel, but he ministered for several decades. Anybody see who's missing here from this list now? You don't need to remember any specific name, but what other kings are missing? That's too hard a question for me, George. Okay, here it is. He's reigning with the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The writer says when he began, Jeroboam II was at the, at the end of his reign, so he ministered for several decades, but he doesn't mention anything else about the northern kingdom. Reaches down to the southern kingdom, says he began at the end of Uzziah's reign all the way to Hezekiah, the beginning of Hezekiah's reign. Lists everybody there. Who doesn't he list? Six northern kings. During that time period, Israel, the northern kingdom, had six more kings. And the writer doesn't even mention them. Why? Scholars believe that they're not mentioned because they're considered as insignificant. They were basic, all they need is the references. His ministry began with this northern king, but the northern kings were wicked. They weren't legitimate because who's the legitimate reign of Israel? What family was the legitimate reign? Anybody? David's family, Yes. And so he lists all the heirs of David during his reign, but he doesn't even mention, just mentions the one guy, but he doesn't even mention the, um, <clears throat> the southern kingdom. So here, here's the point. The writer does not list the six kings of Samaria after the reign of Jeroboam II, okay? So he doesn't list those guys. They're insignificant to him. However, he's preaching to, that king, to the northern kingdom. All right, so just so you know, who's he preaching to? We're going to see where he's from here in a minute. He's a prophet to the northern kingdom, but they're insignificant to him. So Hosea prophesied apparently after the ministry of the, pro after the, ministry of the prophet Amos, okay? So we're going to look at Amos a little bit later in, the, in our order of books, but he's going to be preaching after Amos was prophesying, Okay? Now let's talk about the prophet. First of all, the name. Now, in Hebrew, names have meaning. People gave people a name and it always had a meaning, okay? Now, we give names, we couldn't care less what the meaning is, we just like, oh, I like that name, okay? So like for instance, you know, when my mom and dad gave me George, okay, my name George, they didn't consider saying, oh, farmer, Tiller of the soil. That's what George means. Okay? My wife is shaking her head back there. No, he's not a farmer or a tiller of the soil. Okay? He doesn't like gardening. Okay? 
And, and my mom and dad, when they decided my name, my meaning had no, had no, and that wasn't even entering into their mind. The reason why they gave me George is because that's my dad's name, and I'm a junior. Did you know what I'm saying? I'm George Ray Cannon, Jr. Now, Hebrews were different. Hebrews would name you based upon something that was going on around you. Your name had meaning for a purpose. Now, here's what Hosea's name is. Hosea's name indicates salvation, deliverance, or help. That's the meaning of, of Hosea, okay? Salvation, deliverance, or help. It is generally believed that he was a native of the north, possibly the city of Samaria. So where Hosea came from is they think he was from the north. There's no, no indication exactly, but they think he was from the northern kingdom and maybe possibly from the capital, which was Samaria, okay? Nothing is known of his earlier life. So we really don't know anything of his earlier life except whatever tradition says, which changes all the time, okay? So we don't know anything about him. Nothing is known of his occupation. We don't know what he did for a living. Well, he was a prophet. Okay, I understand that, but a lot of prophets did something else too, okay? We don't know what he normally did. We don't know if he, some of them we know they were, a, a, one, one prophet was a fig, a, grew figs. So he was a farmer. We don't know what this prophet did, okay? However, it is presumed that he was a priest since he had knowledge of priestly duties and responsibilities. So when the scholars look at this book, they look and they say, man, he knows an awful lot about what priests do. He knows about their duties and their responsibilities. And so therefore, he must have been a priest, so that's just an assumption, okay? We don't really know. The text doesn't really tell us, okay? <clears throat> now, here's the other thing. Hosea is different. He was directed to marry a woman of whoredom or idolatry. Now, he was directed to marry a woman of whoredom. So some people will say he was directed to marry a prostitute. That may be very well accurate in its statement. But also, whoredom in the Old Testament is with reference to idolatry, okay? And uh, so, but idolatry is connected to whoredom, to prostituting in this time, okay? So, he was directed to marry a woman of whoredom. God told him to marry this woman, and she was a prostitute, okay? The book provides a parallel between, okay, this is, this is her name. She's got a wonderful, beautiful name, okay? The book provides a parallel between Hosea and Gomer. Gomer is her name, okay? With Yahweh and Israel. Okay, so if you understand that, then the book begins to make sense. That what we see here is in the first part of Hosea, is there's a parallel between the relationship of, of, of um, Hosea taking this unfaithful woman to be his own and God taking Israel, who's, who's very unfaithful, right? And the love and so forth that is there. So the purpose, okay, so we're going to talk about the, what is the purpose of this book, Okay. 
The purpose of Hosea must be understood against the backdrop of the message of Deuteronomy. Remember I told you last week that with the, with the minor prophets, they're not giving you some kind of a new message. They're not giving you some kind of a new directive or anything. But what they're doing is reiterating in their time the message that Moses gave them before they entered into the promised land. The curses and promises of Deuteronomy. And so what Hosea is doing, if you're going to understand Hosea, you've got to understand what was it that God told them through Moses before they entered into the land. And, and I'll just give you a basic synopsis. He said, if you do right, if you do right, if you worship me only, and you, then you will be blessed and you will be fruitful and you'll have wonderful crops and everything will go well if you do right. But the moment you turn against me, it will what? It'll go bad. Okay, and so there's a list of blessings that are given in Deuteronomy. If you do the right thing, here are the blessings. And if you do the wrong thing, here's the curses. And Moses even predicted that they would be taken away. Moses, if you read Moses, I, when I remember going through, when we were studying Deuteronomy in our, in our time here, I was shocked. Moses, everything that happened to Israel, Moses predicted. He prophesied that this would happen to them. So here comes Hosea and the other, other 11, and they're like reiterating the message here from Deuteronomy, okay? From Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy records the covenant agreement between the Lord and Israel. So Deuteronomy is, you remember, because they were asked, they were said, do you agree? And all Israel said, yes, we agree. We hold to this. They entered into a covenant with the Lord. So Deuteronomy records that covenant agreement. Now, here's what Hosea does, though. Hosea comes along and he exposes the breach in the covenant. Hosea comes along, and his purpose in this book is to expose to them that they broke the covenant, that they weren't doing right, that they aren't doing right, that they're rejecting the God of the covenant. So he exposes the breach of the covenant by Israel. But here's what he also does, and so this is where the prophecy comes in. He announces what? He announces God's intention to implement the covenant curses. His, his intention is to tell them, hey, you broke the covenant. Remember when God gave you the covenant, when Moses was there and he told you this and you all agreed to it, you understood that the moment we break this covenant, God's going to pour out these curses on us. So here comes Hosea several hundred years later, and he says, hey, you guys broke the covenant, and guess what's coming? God's going to implement these judgments, okay? God's going to implement these judgments, so he's announcing the, his intention to implement the covenant curses. But here's what the prophets always do. Blows my mind. 
Hosea affirms the promise of God's ultimate restoration. Every single, if you stop for a moment, would you agree with this statement that I make? Okay, maybe, maybe you've read through it and you've seen. Every single one of the prophets do this. Affirm a restoration in the future. They announce God's going to punish them. God's going God's to practically destroy them. But he always, in the end, always holds out a promise to Israel. There's going to be what? There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be, you're going to return to the land. You're going to be blessed. And, and it's an ultimate, which has yet to take place, folks. Now, let me just stop for a moment. There is a theology out there that a lot of folks are in, influenced by uh, in North American Christianity. It, it's called different things. Sometimes it's called replacement theology. Sometimes it's, it's not. And so what they say today is, okay, we're, we're, we're in a new time now. And so God now deals with the church. He's no longer dealing with Israel. Everybody agrees he's no longer, quote, directing his attention to Israel. No, we don't, we're unsure. I don't know how to answer that. That's good that you're unsure, okay? But that's what these people are saying. So now God only deals with who? The church. And so they say God's done with Israel because Israel screwed up so much, he, wiped, he, he just said, I'm done with you, and so now he's looking at the church. That's called replacement theology. Now, here's the problem. What's that, Tim? Yeah, that's right. There's no eternal security there. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, here's the thing. The covenant wasn't based on what they did. It was based on him. Our covenant of salvation, is it based on what you do? It's based on who? What Jesus did, right? Okay, so now we understand that. So when you look at the prophets, and the prophets are saying, you broke the covenant, this is the consequences, but he comes along and says, but yet, later on, I'm going to restore you. He's given them a promise. Who's that promise based on? Yeah, God, not on them. He's punishing them. It never was based on them, okay? So we have to realize, yes, God still is doing a work in Israel right now. Now, we don't understand it. We may not agree with everything we see happening over in the Middle East, okay? However, that doesn't mean God gave up on his plan and that he doesn't have a future role for Israel. That's why Jesus Christ comes back, folks. In the tribulation, is the church even going to be here? No. But who's going to be here? Israel, yes. Do you understand? This is, this is the reality. So what we see here is that he, Hosea, like all the other prophets, is affirming God's ultimate restoration. Okay, now, major themes can be summarized in three words in this book. So there are three themes that are, three words that reflect themes in this book as we're going to look at it when we start into it. Sin, Judgment, salvation. Sin, the exposing of the sin, 
judgment, the implementation of these curses, God judging the sin, but then ultimately what? Salvation, future restoration. Do you understand what I'm saying? Ultimate restoration. So, while Hosea contains several, this, this blew my mind. While Hosea contains several calls to repentance, he did not expect a positive response. Wow. You know, I'd like to think if, if the, he's holding out the hope, just turn back to me, repent. They're, they're, to me, they're, I, I guess I'm a positive guy. So I'm always thinking that people are going to do that. They're going to do that. Hosea does what he's told to do, calling people to repentance, but he doesn't expect them to. And then I thought, yeah, isn't that true for a lot of the prophets? When you consider the calling of some of the bigger prophets, the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, he says to them, I'm sending you to the people and you will share with them what I'm telling you, but they won't listen to you. Man, they're not going to listen to you, but I'm sending you. Would God do that? Yeah, it's very clear in, the, in, the, in those passages where he calls these prophets. They're not going to listen to you. It's like you deliver my message, the call to repentance, but he's not expecting them to change. Why? Because their hearts are what? Darkened by sin, folks. Darkened by sin. I think that's something for us to ponder sometime. We just, you know, I look at this and I'm like, man, this makes perfect sense. Everybody should just be ready to embrace this and let's get on with happy life in Jesus, right? But then you share and they're like, oh man, I don't want that. I don't, I, you know, whatever they tell you and you're like, I don't, you're scratching your head. You don't understand why. Their hearts are darkened. Their hearts are darkened. Their understanding is darkened, okay? So he, he Hosea contains several calls to repentance, but he did not expect a positive response. But here's what it is. Hosea's reconciliation with Gomer illustrates Israel's ultimate restoration. So that's part of the purpose of this book. The restoration between Hosea and his wife illustrates to us God's ultimate restoration of Israel. Now, what does that have to do with you and I, George? Because we're, we're not Israel. We're not Jewish. What does that got to do with us? Well, okay, so the implication is this. How do we apply what we're going to read? So this is where we're going to spend the last couple of seconds thinking about it. When we read this book, I don't want you to think United States of America. That's the furthest thing from the mind of this, of this passage. Do you understand what I'm saying? This, the prophets had nothing to say about the United States of America, period, nothing. They didn't even know there wasn't a United States of America. First of all, they didn't even know that there was a Western Hemisphere with North and South America. They didn't know that. All they knew was their world that they knew, which was around Israel, going around the Mediterranean. The farthest they may have thought was Tarshish, which was Spain, okay? They didn't have any other concept. 
So they're not talking about that. There's no hidden something or another. This is about Israel. Now, where do we, what do we get from this, though? Okay, but it's about Israel, God's people. God's people. So there are lessons for you and I because we are who? God's people. And so it may be that as we study this, God may be pricking your heart about something and he might say to you, you're doing the same thing. You're doing the same thing. And so you need to consider what I'm saying here to Israel. You need to consider it for your own life. You know what I'm saying? So we try to find application with what's going on in their life. How does it equate to what's going on in our lives right now as God's people? Do you understand what I'm saying? As God's people, the church. Okay? So what we're going to see here is when I look at this, the ultimate restoration, I think of one thing that equates in our mind immediately you and I, we sin, right? And with that, it hurts our relationship with who? With God. And one of the most debilitating things for you and I as a Christian is that the enemy will come along and say to you, well, you've screwed up now. There's no way you can ever make that relationship right again. Really? When you look at the illustration of Hosea and Gomer, yeah, can it be made right? Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's, there is a message there for us, okay? There is a message there for us. So it's about the ultimate restoration. So, all right. I'm excited about getting into this book. There's 14 chapters, okay? So how are we going to approach this, George? 14 weeks looking at a chapter? No, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to look at it based on sections, so the first section is the interaction, the story of Hosea and Gomer. So we're gonna, it may take a couple of weeks to go through those chapters, but maybe it'll be only one week, but we're going to see the important things that we need to see about because it illustrates God's ultimate restoration for Israel. Then the last part, after the interaction between Hosea and Gomer, is some oracles or sermons or statements that Hosea makes over a period of time that have meaning for Israel at that time. And so we'll look at those as well. So we'll see what we're going. So then by the time we're done with Hosea, you'll be like, yeah, I'm ready to read Hosea. You know, that's the first book I'm not going to ignore anymore, Hosea. 